How do you do, Venters? It's me, Chloe Clark, subbing in for Trent. In this special episode, don't take your eye off the ball because Trent is going to throw you a Koopa Loop today. Laker legend Michael Cooper sits down with Trent and he shares Coop's 5Ds and views from the bench and even jokes and much, much more. So let's get into it. With Trent the Jet, they like agents on top of pavements, peppermint patty fragrance. Taking the credits when they spits and spritz a chip and dip a dip and dell. I pin the tail, death throw the penalty ID, throwing identity theft crime in the night. Pick pop, keep the lock, stop, drop, roll the dice, double double dough, eat the rock road, Rochambeau, tic tac toe, crossing a road with the nice flow. With my industry, you see me room, room, play Monopoly with my commodities, stop the eyes and cross the T's, T's. So how do you do, Venters? Um, welcome to this edition today of Vent with Trent the Gent. And I'm sitting with a five-time NBA champion, Michael Cooper, who is currently the head coach of the Atlanta Dream. So, Michael, thank you for joining us today on Vent with Trent, Trent the Gent. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good. So let's um, jump right into it. Um, now, I heard this. Or I read this on Wikipedia, so, you know, it's not always true on, on Wikipedia. But they said at the age of three, you, um, you cut your knee that would require 100 stitches, and the doctor said that you would uh, never walk again. Is, is that a true yep. story? True story. So how, how did you actually cut your, your knee? Um, my uh, uncle had, um, had just, uh, we, he just got a dog. The dog had puppies. And uh, back in the 60s, um, uh, people used to use the old Folgers coffee cans. They would, uh, cut the top off, uh, and then use the, put the, uh, coffee into something else. And then we would use that to, uh, keep our grease, bacon, grease, chicken. Mm -hmm. So it would always be like on the back porch. And, uh, this particular day, the dogs, the puppies were running around, they had knocked it over. Uh, but they didn't cut the lid all the way off. They left the lid kind of on. So as I came out there, I slipped on the bacon grease and, oh you know, being a little skinny guy, cut it all the way to the bone, all the way around. Wow. I thought you were going to say it was like a spittoon can <laughs> there for a minute. I remember them using it for that as well. Do you remember the doctor telling you those words and, and what was your, your no, feeling? No, don't when, remember it. I was no. too young. But mm -hmm. my grandmother, who kind of nursed me back, uh, that stayed with me all that night, uh, she was telling me about it when I asked, used to ask about my knee. Why did you get this scar or something like that? So I think it was too, uh, too much of a traumatic incident that you try to just, you know, your brain kind of like shuts that down. So, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, by the grace of God and uh, my family, I was able to come back from that. Yes. Do you remember the rehabilitation or do you remember any of that part of it? Or? Just, um, uh, I don't know if you know the uh, Forrest Gump movie. Uh, of course. They had, and uh, when he was a little kid, uh, he was running. Mm -hmm. Run, the guy was chasing him. He ran out of that brace, that shoot. That's what I had. I had one of those, not on both legs, but on my left leg. Um, and so that was uh, uh, my rehab. I was supposed to stay into that. Back then, that was like a, a life, life sentence. You know, you got that, and, uh, you know, people don't recover from them type of things. So I remember having that on. And uh, the biggest thing I can remember, though, is never being able to go outside. Uh, we lived uh, in a big, huge house. And uh, our house, as well as many others on the block, 
had the big old huge picture window. So my grandmother would never let me go out and sit on the porch because she knew that I, if I went out there, I would be placed. So I always had to, she put a chair for me when we came in from school and stuff. And I had to look at my cousins then, uh, my brother, uh, play outside in the front yard, run up and down the street, play on the grass. And I always remember, uh, this was for about, a, about two years, uh, they would come inside and they would be tired. And I'd say, why, why are you guys coming in the house? And they say, because we're tired. I said, you know what? If I ever had a chance to do that, I would never come in the house. So that kind of stuck with me a lot. Uh, but again, just the, um, the part of watching them play outside. And I had to sit there at the window and I couldn't go outside. And then slowly as I got older and it starts healing, my grandmother gave me a little more rain to go. I would sit on the porch. Then I was able to go down to the bottom step for, from the front walkway to the sidewalk. And uh, eventually I was able to go back out and play, but it took some time. So at what point when, after all this happened, at what point did you realize that you could jump as, as great as you can? Uh, that didn't come until probably I was like 15, 14, 15. Uh, started playing sports. I could always run and it never bothered me. That was the interesting thing about it. Um, people would say that it was hurt. You hear people with different injuries or something like that. Uh, even as little kids, um, they would always say, well, mine hurt, but mine never hurt. And one thing that we used to do, and I found out that I could run, was we used to have races up and down because the, the, the block we lived on, everybody had kids. So it was kind of like, it was uh, called Bell Street. And then it was a Marengo Street. Uh, so we, we had probably about maybe 10 kids, 12 kids, all of us about the same age, two or three, two or three uh, years apart. And at night, we would have races on the sidewalk. And uh, we, you know, we start up five or six houses up and we race down while grandparents them, you know, they used to sit on the porch and Pasadena was hot back then in the summertime. Um, so uh, we would race. And that's when I knew I could run without any pain. And then actually playing basketball and other stuff, didn't really uh, know about that. I mean, you'd run and catch a fly ball or you run and uh, catch a pass or something like that. But uh, the actual jumping off my leg, uh, and it wasn't until probably I was about maybe eighth grader, ninth grader when I realized that it was gonna be all right. You mentioned Pasadena, and so we're both Pasadena boys, so, so we'll get into that a, a little bit later. But um, also in my research, I learned that you are the only person that have has won a championship in either by coaching or playing in the NBA, WNBA, and the um, developmental league of the NBA. So how, how does that make you feel to know, know that you're the only one that has achieved something like that? Very good. I mean, you know, anything that has the NBA on it, I've been able to be very successful. And it all started with my playing. Uh, I think Pat Riley kind of initiated the, the or hit that little spark to want to coach the way that he... Um, coached us and developed us and attention to detail as far as his coaching. Uh, and I knew that once basketball was over with, I was gonna have to fill that void with something. So coaching would be the next best thing. So had an opportunity to uh, coach with Dale Harris in 90, 93, 94 season. Uh, I was on the, on the coaching staff for four years and I knew, uh, that I, I knew that I could coach the game, uh, but I knew that I wasn't supposed to be an assistant coach. And I just knew that. So it was hard for me to catch on because, again, coaching in the circle of the NBA, 
head coaches really want guys that want to be an assistant. You don't want no, and unless you're really, really securing yourself and your coaching ability, you don't want an up and newcomer because, you know, seasons are flighty. You have a season and they fire you and they see this kid coming up behind you and that's what it is. So uh, when that happened to me, when I left uh, uh, the, the Lakers in 94 or 96 season, uh, I got into some broadcasting, but I knew I wanted a coach and that's when I heard that the WNBA might come into an existence. And then in 99, uh, it all happened and I was able to... Um, get with the Los Angeles Sparks. Uh, the late, great Orlando Woolridge was the head coach and he gave me my opportunity to be an assistant coach and get involved in that. And I love the WNBA because the women played the game the way we did. You had to be fundamentally sound. They truly played the game below the rim. So getting involved with that uh, really gave me the, the form to, to kind of implement my old school ways because the women are trying to learn how to play professionally. Remember back then it was a college and then they had to go overseas. Well, now there was a league for them here in the States. Um, and again, I had the opportunity to coach probably one of the greatest, actually three of the greatest players that's ever played this game. Uh, Delisa Milton Jones, uh, Candace Parker, and then Lisa Leslie. So Lisa was the first center. And just the thing I enjoyed about her is that she was really, really, uh, conscious of being a professional you know the, the hero of this league the sparks were one of the premier teams for one of the cornerstones of the league and she wanted to be successful so we really worked at it and the fun part about it is is that she used to pick my brain coop tell me about this tell me about that so once we started winning got a chance to go away and then the opportunity came up to my uh, my alma mater in new mexico they had just started putting more d-league teams around and they uh, had the albuquerque thunderbirds and I had just left, um, I had left the Sparks to go to Denver. That was a short stint. And I, and I was back here in LA and a guy called me. Um, and he was like, Coop, we hoping a team down there. We'd love it if you come down because the key to those uh, w, uh, the D-League teams is that they're in small markets and they're in, usually in markets where there's no NBA team. And uh, this was back in the early 2000s. And, so I go down there and uh, stayed there for two years. And I think the one thing that I brought from the team that we were picking from is uh, the most of those players are like one step away, it's whether they can shoot a jumper, whether they can jump stop and pivot, reverse pivot. There was something wrong with their game that, and I think I sold the players for that. So uh, becoming a head coach down there, and then I was assistant GM because uh, the organization was, they try to keep it small so the, the uh, finances aren't going out the roof. And we had a good time. That was one of, probably one of the best times I really enjoyed. Cause my first time really coaching men with me being the head coach. So I had the final say so on a lot of things and uh, got some great players down there. And I think my claim to fame down there was a player out of Kentucky who had gotten drafted by Houston and he had tore up his ankle and he couldn't play. His name was Chuck Hayes from Kentucky. And Chuck was a very good player, six, seven, uh, mediocre player, but did everything. And uh, when, we, when they had the draft, he was in there and I had my sons actually, they watched a lot of college. I didn't watch college basketball at that time. And they were like, dad, you gotta get him. So we drafted Chuck Hayes, number one. And uh, Chuck, down there, you get like a lot of loose guys down there. I mean, some of them, are legends in their own mind. They think <laughs> that they know everything. And I used to tell them, man, this is, if you guys listen to me, you'll get your opportunity. Because all you're looking for is a call up. That was everybody's dream. 
So uh, we had a first couple of 15 games. Chuck played well. Houston called him up. Uh, we were on our way to Tulsa, and uh, they called him up. We, had, we, were, we were at the Albuquerque airport, got a phone call, and it was a Houston, and they was like, hey, you guys uh, could put Chuck on a plane. We want to go here. So, uh, you know, we bid farewell to him. And uh, we go to Houston, and he came back, and they couldn't pass the physical. So he ended up flying and met us in Tulsa. And I said, Chuck, listen, he was really down about it. I said, man, listen, let's get you healthy, but just do everything. So long story short, uh, this young man got healthy. We won the championship our first year. No expansion team had ever won it before. And we went to um, uh, Fort Worth, and we beat a very good team because the Dallas Mavericks were sending down players to play down there. But we beat a very good basketball team. And after that game, we were on our way back home and we got a call again. Houston was like, Coop, send him up. We saw him play. And Chuck averaged probably about that game. He had 20, 27 points, 22 rebounds. Uh, he was a beast, a uh, beast. And um, when he got his call up, he went past the physical and made their team and was really an instrumental player uh, with the Houston. And then he ended up going, but he ended up signing a very big contract, mm -hmm. uh, five-year $18 million contract, and to this day, he calls me, Coach Cooper, listen, can I send you some money? I said, Chuck, man, listen, the joy from my experience with you down there is that you made it. I was able to help you make it. Uh, money, I got that, you know. Uh, he was like, no, I'm gonna send you. I said, Chuck, don't send me any money. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's kind of nice to know that you're a winner at every level that the, that the NBA has something to do with, and uh, but that's just all about giving back. You know, I had a lot of people that gave to me and helped me get an opportunity to see my dream come true. And now that's what I try to do. So out of all of those championships, is one more meaningful than the other? Uh, I'd say 1985 was the, the special one because, again, playing with the Lakers, uh, the first time that we had beat Los Angeles Lakers that beat the Boston Celtics. I grew up, we grew up here, so we always used to see the Celtics beat Wilt Jerry and Elgin, Gail Goodrich, and they just could never win. We had our opportunity in 84, and it just, it was that little leprechaun guy, you know, knocking our balls away, and we had a chance to come back that next year. So for the NBA, that would be a special one, and that kind of holds up high. But then um, my real special one is uh, when I coached the ladies, our first championship. Well, actually those two, because uh, Houston had won the first four, and we got over the hump, and there were some things that we had to get to and go through to eventually beat them. But we've dethroned them, and we won our championship. And I, you know, the ladies were so focused on what I was telling them that you could see our improvement every game. And um, I think we ended up setting a record. We were 28 and 4. I think that has been broken now um, out of 32, 34 games. We uh, broke the record and went 28 and 4 that year. We had a 18 game winning streak. And uh, so those two championships kind of go, and then um, it's eighteen games. Is that is that a record? Eighteen straight. Yep. Yeah. Is that a record? Yeah, wow. big time record. And then uh, my championship um, with the D League was good because those guys kind of like you know, I mean we had some crazy guys, and they these guys would go out all night party, come back. We got practice at nine, and all of them would come in smelling drunk. Except Chuck, you know, yes, but and but they they were there, and I told them, I said, if y'all go out and drink, I'm gonna run you to death. So they stopped doing it, and that's when we really turned it as a team. So um, I would say in that order, '85 WNBA, and then the D League, but they're all special in their own way. What 
interesting ideas are you having or have had that are worth pursuing? And so you mentioned coaching in the league and coaching men. Is there an aspiration to, and you probably can't say this because you have a job right now, but is there an aspiration to someday get back to and coach in the NBA? Um, no, not really. I'm 60 years old now. Uh, I enjoy watching it. Not a lot of teams in there. And I think, again, the coaches now, you have to have stamina and a lot of patience to coach the players because the NBA gives out so much money that when these guys get it, it's almost like you are kind of like in the way. And unless you have a, uh, and I do have a, a strong personality, strong character. I think my knowledge is, speaks for itself. But these guys here are new guys. And they, you know, if you were to ask them, hey, you know, Dr. J, well, they probably, yeah, I, I might have heard of him. So now <laughs> the kids coming up only know what they see in front of them. Steph Curry, LeBron. Uh, so that would be, I think, a big turning point for me. And then I'm a stickler for fundamentals. And these kids now, uh, I was at the gym the other day and they were telling me I went to see um, uh, Crossroads and Westlake play. And um, these kids are huge. Shaq's son is over there. Mm -hmm. This kid is 6'9", 6'10", built like a grown man. And, he, and he's just the 11th grader. Wow. So the kids are so athletic that they forget about the fundamentals. And coaches down, you know, their job is on the line. So my job, you know, I don't have time to teach them the fundamentals. And let's have 10 games my first season, 11 and all. You're getting fired if you don't win. And so what they do now is they go out and get the six best players they can. And then they put them together and y'all play. So they don't teach them that. So for me, to get a raw player coming into the league and you're trying to spend your time with him and coach him and he's just kind of like going through the motions because whether he listens to you or not, whether he plays or not, and you like to think that they still like to compete no matter how much money, he's still going to get paid, bottom line. And sometimes they'll tell you, you know what? You're not who the people are coming to see. They come to see me. So if I sit you on the bench, then I'm the one that's at risk of losing my job. So I choose not to go through all of that. Um, if something were to happen, I wouldn't turn it down. I would really have to think about it, talk to my wife about it. But uh, I'm pretty comfortable where I am now because my schedule is really flexible. I get a lot of time. Uh, this is my second marriage and I have an 11-year-old. And my first marriage, I was always gone with my other three kids. So I never really got to do the father-son thing during the school because we were traveling. Well, now with the WNBA season being in the summertime, uh, it kind of messes with our summertime, but at least I get to spend those eight, seven, eight months going to the schools. And we went to um, my son's school. We went down to the Marine, down to San Diego to a Marine biology thing. And I was down there all day with them, you know. And now next week we're going to uh, camping, you know. So those are some of the things that I missed out on. But I still enjoyed my life uh, in the NBA, but my kids, but now I got to get, get, not many people get a second chance to relive that. And I've been given a second chance and I'm enjoying it, mm -hmm. but, uh, coaching were to come up, I'd seriously consider it. But what I do want to do aspirations is I'm, I'm ready to write a book. Okay. I'm, uh, actually it, talking to someone now and the name of the book is a view from the bench. And it's going to be my view from all the benches that I've been on. That sounds interesting. So being yeah. an author is, my next move. <laughs> the, uh, check that one off. So, yeah. most athletes have some type of superstition. Did did you have any? Was it the high socks? What did my superstition playing? 
and there's two different ones, playing and coaching. Okay. Uh, as a player, if we won a game, I would do everything the same way I did the last time. I'd take the same route on the way to the forum. I would walk the same way that I did. I would uh, walk in the same door. I'd, I'd kind of like mimic everything that I did to help. And some, it, I mean, it worked a lot of times. Sometimes it didn't, but an athlete, you kind of get that stuck in your head. As a coach, um, when we win, I will eat the same thing. That I'll do everything exactly the same that I did in the morning before I get. Because once you get to the arena, it's the players that's going to take over. So I feel, let me get my karma right going there because I came there this time, the last time we won. Let me do the same thing because that's my only way of helping them. So during that 18-game streak, what, what did you eat for 18 straight days? Do you remember? With the, uh, oh, it was a steak. <laughs> I ate steak oh, for 18 <laughs> days, yeah. You know what? I was at that time, was real thin still, so I was yeah. trying to gain weight, so it didn't bother me to do that, but now I couldn't do that. My metabolism has slowed down. Uh, as a player, I weighed 178 pounds. Now I weigh 220. So, Trent the Gent, you got some measuring to do after we do this, because I got to get another suit for oh, you. Oh my goodness, I thought uh, we were static on there. So let's talk about fashion then a little bit, since obviously I am your wardrobe advisor. Uh, I alluded to the the long white socks. Um, how how did? Because it seemed to me that you were pretty much the only one that was doing that back back in the day. So that how, how fashion did that statement about? was created by my grandmother uh, in 1974. She had glaucoma, and uh, they had stopped the high school game of the weeks in 1970 just as I came in. So for four years, they didn't do it. So 1974, they brought it back. It was going to be a, a CBS high school game of the week. And it came on Saturday. So uh, being uh, on a basketball team, uh, most of the players were African-Americans, such as myself. And my grandmother said, you have to do something to distinguish yourself so I'll know that it's you. So uh, I wore my socks up high. I wore my strings hanging out. And I wore two sweatbands. And... Um, had my best game I ever had in high school. I had 27 points, 15 rebounds, four block shots, and five slam dunks. And it was a, it was the best game I'd ever played in high school. So that wasn't said, person, you know what? that wasn't against Muir, was it? <laughs> no, <laughs> El Rancho. Uh, of course. <laughs> so uh, that kind of stayed with me, and that's what I've been doing ever since. But fashion has always been something very uh, close to me. Because again, coming up uh, in a big household, uh, I was always given hand-me-downs, you know, always, because I was, feet were just as big as my uncle, so I always got their stuff. So, you know, they tried not to wear everything out, so they gave me their pants, and, you know, it was, it was appropriate stuff, though. So I said, you know what, if I ever get an opportunity, I'm going to always be a nice dresser. And uh, that's what happened. So I get with the Lakers once we start that. And then, uh, you know, just going through the motions with dressing and stuff. And then Pat Riley comes out, bam, you know, <laughs> uh, the Riley spread and yes. his own little look, uh, uh, hair slicked back. And uh, I think that's when all of us kind of, and one thing he always used to tell us, he says, you know what, you guys, you guys got to always look nice because it don't matter whether you're winning or losing, people are gonna say He's, he looks nice. So uh, that's, that's my model now. When I'm on the sideline with my Trent suit on, I'm looking that's nice. So if we get our butts kicked by 30, they can't say I'm not looking <laughs> nice. But we winning, hey, winning and he looks nice. There you go. 
just a, a something that I've been thinking about because now all the suits are more slim fitted and tight. Oof. But it's it's funny that if you told an NBA player to wear tight shorts as you guys used to wear in, in the 80s, they wouldn't do that. So why would they wear tight suits, but they don't want their uniforms to be tight? Because anyway. they want freedom, but they don't realize those Daisy Dukes we used to wear right there, <laughs> on the, on them crazy, that, that was, uh, uh, they, you could move, you could open your legs. Now these guys can't dribble between their legs because there's so much cloth between there, you know, fabric. They dribble and it kind of hits. But, you know, I think Michael Jordan started that uh, in the late 80s. Uh, and then once the Bulls started winning in the 90s, it really became a fashion thing. and. Uh, it's kind of like uh, that has kind of stuck. Yes. Uh, but you know, um, fashions come and go, but they always come back. So hopefully one day, you know, uh, it might be 2020, 2025. So let's go back to, to Pasadena. So obviously you went to Pasadena High School. Uh, I went to John Muir. So there's probably a ton of ventures out there that can't stand the fact that you know, we're even talking together because that's just how strong that rivalry is still today. So with all that said, what's what's the most intense rivalry? Because obviously you've had, um, you know, I'm looking at a photo right now of Magic and, and Dr. J. So you had that rivalry, obviously the Lakers Celtics. So what has been the most intense rivalry that you've been a part of? I think the Celtics, well, first of all, Mirror, PHS, that, that's, and that ran deep in our house because, uh, you know, my grandmother had 10 kids. They all had kids. And uh, four, three, three of her kids went to Mirror and ran track. And, uh, and the rest of everybody else went to PHS. So uh, we would get into the house and have dinner. And you know what? Uh, she was like, listen, don't talk that here. This is, <laughs> we all one family. We're the Butler family. So uh, that is first and foremost. Um, uh, this is a jab at you, Trent. You know, we got the bell more often in football, so <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway. Um, I don't uh, know about that. We might have to check <laughs> that stuff. <laughs> but uh, the most intense one probably that, that uh, really hit home a lot was the Celtics-Lakers. And being from Los Angeles and watching those times happen and then Magic and Bird coming in and then our opportunity to become part of that. Uh, was an eye-opening experience because uh, I never thought, I've always thought basketball was a very gentleman game, sportsmanship, but it got to the point to where, uh, and I had a, my, my best friend, Dennis Johnson, I've been playing, I was playing against Dennis when he was in JC, we met back then and playing at Crenshaw in the summertime around here. Uh, it was so intense and he, he would always say, damn Coop, you know, uh, but when we played them, I wouldn't talk to him. Yeah. When the season started, I wouldn't talk to him. He tried to talk to me, like, hey man, how's the family? Wouldn't say anything. <laughs> he goes, damn, you take this serious, huh? And then I would just look at him. But uh, once the season was over, so we called him, oh man, we were, and then we coached in the D-League together. He was at Fort Worth, no, he was at Austin, and I was in uh, Al uh, Albuquerque, uh, and we used to talk, you know, had a good time. But that series, man, that, that ran deep, real deep. So when you see the players real chummy now, obviously because they all grew up playing together, um, are you one of the old school yep. thoughts of don't understand why they're hugging each other, while you know, getting their butts kicked out there and exactly. they're laughing? Why are you smiling and stuff? And Pat Riley's favorite word was, 
don't fraternize with the enemy. Anybody that don't have a Laker jersey on is the enemy. So uh, it was kind of hard for us to see when we played Detroit Pistons, Magic and Isaiah hug and kiss <laughs> each other. And I was like, you know what, E, come on, man. This is, this is war. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, again, you don't – I understand sportsmanship, but I'm, I passion. My passion is Lakers. My passion is basketball. And I was very um, – I, I was a competitor. I'm going to compete every time so uh, like I said if you don't have that uh, Laker uniform on you are definitely uh, the enemy what's the um, what's the best rivalry of all time in your opinion Celtics Celtics Lakers Celtics Lakers so that's definitely it I think I could um, agree with that okay. I just remember that so let's talk about being a, a champion and being a champion that that you are how do you compensate for your weaknesses and being the competitor that, that like you, uh, said, you, you like know what the one luxury that uh, a, a, a professional have in, in my profession is that uh, basketball is a team sport so the way teams are built it's kind of like built around everybody's weaknesses because we all have to cover up for each other uh, but again, what you try to do in practice and through the course of your career is to work on your weaknesses. So for me, I think my one weakness was, um, offensively I was good, but I understood coming to the Lakers, they didn't need a lot of offense. So that was something I eventually had to work on in 1984, 85, because people used to back off of me. So, uh, I just think there's, uh, five things that I think a person should do. Uh, to be the best that you can be, whether it's uh, an athlete or just a person out in society trying to to make it make ends meet, is uh, what I call Coop's five D's, and they are determination, dedication, desire, discipline, and decision making. And I talk to kids when I go out, as well as my own kids and my son right now, is that uh, those five D's can help you at any point in your life. Uh, you can pick one a day. Uh, sometimes throughout the day, you might need all five. But the important thing is that whatever you do is you be committed to it. And uh, without getting too religious, my, my higher power is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all things happen through him. And I think that's first and foremost. But uh, he, you're here to be the best person you can be in whatever field it is. And mine just happened to be basketball and now it's a coach. So I'm always striving to be better, even as a dad, as a husband, as a person walking out, as an employee, just to be the best that I can be. And I think those five Ds really helped me um, in everything. Um, I tell kids to try to um, be student athletes. Uh, I think sports is important for anybody as a young person, I think, and even my daughter, she played sports. No, it's not something that you have to just uh, take a liking to. But what sports gives you, it gives you that team concept. And even when you're in a corporate office or you're at Coca-Cola, uh, there's a bunch of people. You got 50 people in different stuff. Everybody's working together as a team. You might be working on your own thing. But when you put that all together, your piece is just as important as that person's piece. So when you guys go to that conference or you go to that meeting, you got to be on point. And I think sports allows you that and teach you how to work uh, within a group setting, but still how to be strong and an individual on your own. 
the five D's, you were prowess in your defensive game and obviously defensive player of the year, I forget what year that was, and um, first team defensive players. So did you strategically make all those D's because you were a great defensive player? No. Those no, five D's came about because that was my report card. <laughs> my goodness. When I was in the fifth and sixth grade, I, I went to school just as, you know, to play basketball. I knew that uh, during the day, everybody's going to be at the school, so I couldn't go to the park. I mean, you go down there and play with drug dealers and pimps and guys that are just sitting around, but the real people that you want to compete against were at school. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, and for me, a D was better than an F or an incomplete. So that, how I came up with those, that was my report card. The only A I used to get was uh, in gym. And back in the 70s, all you had to do was go stand on a number. And when the teacher came out, 22, all you had to do was say here, 25 here. Okay, pass. Now, whatever you did that day, he might give you a, a A++ because you participated in soccer or volleyball or whatever. But I got an A because I was on my number. So that's how the five Ds came up. Interesting. How do you get people to buy into, and I guess people would be obviously your 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 players, how do you get them to buy into your vision and to your culture? Well, that's the uniqueness about being a coach. I think, uh, and again, one thing that I got over a lot of people is that I've won at the highest level. So our players now with the Atlanta Dream, you know, I'm telling you how to get it done because I want, did it as a player and then as a coach with the, with, the, with the Sparks. So if you listen to me and you do it the way I'm asking you to do it, and my, you know, I got a very creative mind, uh, we can be successful together, but it takes all of us doing it together, not just three of us or four of us, all of us doing it together. So um, the things that I've learned and the things that I have experienced uh, has helped me to become a better coach. But uh, Magic once told me something that when I first started coaching, which is just so true to this day, because uh, uh, in the late 90s, I mean, early 90s, he and I took over for 17 games. I remember and, that. Uh, yeah, he told me, and I was coaching, I said, E, what are you thinking about there? He said, Coop, you know what? The most important thing that you can do as a coach is always keep the matchups in your favor. You got to have the better matchups out on the floor. I, uh, if, so five players, I want to have at least three of the best matchups. One might be a, a offset. One might be just their way. But I got three of them that I can always go to. So and thinking about that and using that in my philosophy, that's what I try to do with our players. And they actually like it because somebody's going to get to shoot a little bit more for this particular game. So um, uh, that's how that works its way out. And that's how you try to get the players to buy into your philosophy. Let's do a, a new segment on Vent with Trent's Gent. And you mentioned coming up, you're going to be writing your book. So you might consider that to be a what is going to be your dent in the universe as steve jobs used to say so how do how do you feel if, if it's not that book and if it's not sharing your five d's with the world how do you intend to make your dent in the universe by living a good life uh i think people take example of the way other people live and uh, i think you know all of us got to die one day but you know it's your legacy can live on uh, somebody says people 
remember heroes, but legends never die. And I like to feel that, uh, you know, through my play and through the way I live, that I can be a legendary, even if it's in my own son's uh, mind or in his life. But the people that I go out and touch and, and the people I talk to, hopefully I'm able to leave that lasting mark with them. So speaking of, of legends, if you, if you have one, what's your favorite Chick Hearn story? Uh, my favorite Chick Hearn story is something that he always used to do. Uh, and Chick was just, uh, you know, a great announcer. He was one of the, the first, he and Johnny Most that used to call the, the Boston Celtics game. It was one of the first ones that I can remember that had such a voice and had such a voice that was so in touch with the game that his voice transcended through the radio and it made you, it touched that inner you in your mind to make you feel like you were actually at the game. He described everything. You know, um, I think Emerald the Cook used to say, well, if you had smell-o-vision, it would be fantastic. Chick could make you, the popcorn's popping and you can just smell the popcorn. Uh, the hot dogs are, are, you know, a whole lot of things that's going on. So uh, Chick um, was such a dynamic person, but the one thing that got on his nerves was slow airplanes. And every time we got on a plane, cause Chick would always, when the game's over, he did his little segment, then he would leave, go to the airport. And at the time we flew domestic. Uh, and you know, by the time we finished up, it was probably 30, 40 minutes. But as we would get on, uh, Chick would have a little drink. And by that time he was like, let's get this thing going. Let's get out of here. And I mean, that's the one thing that I always remember about him for 12 years. Every game, 41 games on the road, that's how I could hear Chick Hearn. That's, you know, he would be quiet for a few minutes and people was getting on. And I mean, people, we, the general public is getting on because we sat in the first class. But you'd hear his voice, let's get this thing in the air. Like, I'm ready to go. So uh, that's a, my favorite Chick. But my favorite story is one that he used to tell about me. It's like he says, Cooper's so, no, he's like, when I would play defense, he would say, Cooper's all over him, just like linoleum on the floor. <laughs> so uh, that was uh, my best. Actually, congratulating for that. I know very much so, because uh, that was. I said, Chick, how'd you come up with that? He says, "Coop, when I'm calling the games, it just come to me." So wow. that's my favorite Chick story. Nice. Um, there's another segment that that we do. Actually, before I do that segment, you played briefly in Italy. Mm -hmm. Did you learn any Italian? Learned there? a little bit. Learned a little bit, not enough to stick. Nothing uh, the one thing that uh, actually, you know, uh, with any foreign language, you have to, if you just are learning it, you have to speak it all the time. Yes. So I was over there for the whole year, and uh, by the time I left, I pretty much, I'm more of a listener. So uh, I can articulate some things, and, 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 and uh, Italian is actually close to Spanish. So it was kind of easy for me to pick up, but I got to where... And I told the guys during the midway of the season, I said, hey, listen, you guys, the first two or three months, you guys talk English. And, you know, they said, after that, you guys go ahead and talk. And I got it to where I could listen to their conversation. I couldn't get in on a lot, but when I wanted to, I would speak English. But I knew what they were saying. Uh, but there was three things that you were told uh, to do, Americans, when you go there. And uh, one was Dama La Pala. That's give me the ball. Okay. <laughs> give me the ball. And, give me the uh, damn ball. <laughs> yeah. Give me the ball. <laughs> And passage, passage qui, pass here. 
okay. pass it here. And then you learn all the curse words. So I knew all the curse words. <laughs> you can say one of those if you want. Vafanculo. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness, man. Don't, don't. You know what that one is? I have no idea what That's that is. That's the MF. Oh my goodness. <laughs> In our language, Vafanculo. But you're supposed a, to do it like this when you say it to yeah. him. Flick your yeah, chin. Someone low bridge you, bridge you during the game. Or just they when they're acting crazy. You tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's do the fill in the blank sec section. So I'm going to read you a couple of words and then you're going to fill in the blank. All right, so don't stop blank. The party. Don't stop, Don't the, stop party. the party. Keep it okay. rolling. So you, you like to get oh, I like a little party on? Oh, yeah, all the time. I'm a big dancer. Uh, what's your favorite dance right now? Everything. Because it's I not like everything. when we grew up. We had actual dances. It just seemed like they just... I like the nene, okay. but I stick with some <laughs> old-fashioned, the lawnmower, sprinkler, you uh, know, all right. and uh, shopping cart. There, there you yeah, go. So I got a couple. Uh, number two, you can blank. Always be great. You can always be great. Now, what if there's someone out there? You can always be great, no matter how large it is on a scale. Greatness for some people, if a scale of one to ten, greatness is a two for some people. Hmm. Some people, greatness is a ten. So you can always be great. You can never not be great. And the only way you cannot be great is that you don't try. There you go. Third one, conversations are blank. funny conversations are funny I, I I enjoy laughing and when I when I have a conversation with somebody at some point in time it's gonna turn funny so you can have conversations with someone but you know after a while let's just let's have some fun you know <laughs> I'm a storyteller so, so I like to tell stories so and I think I remember when you played you were kind of known as a jokester Right, yeah. so you, you have to like, team. Um, so you like to tell stories, and you're a jokester. So I'm gonna put you on the spot now. Do you have any jokes? Any good jokes that off the top of your head? Yeah, knock knock. Who's there? Oh, what's that one? Oh, <laughs> oh no. Okay, this is it. There you go. Uh, why the chicken cross the road? You want me to answer to, to get to the other side? Okay, that's mine. But there's like four different versions of <laughs> that. So that's it. That, that's your joke? Well, I got a good one. You want me to tell it? Yeah, tell, okay. tell me. <laughs> this is a joke about taking care of business, okay? There was this farmer who lived on a farm, and he worked from sunup to sundown every day, never paying attention to his wife, always just kind of ignored her. So for 30 years, that's what they did. You know, he just took care of the farm, and she did the inside and stuff. So this one night, he was feeling particularly frisky, so uh, he gets in the bath, uh, he gets in the house, and he takes a shower. And he gets in the bed and his wife climbs into the bed with him. And uh, he starts uh, massaging her neck, giving her kisses and stuff. And he starts massaging her, um, her uh, breast up top. And he goes, you know, honey, if these can produce milk, we can get rid of the cows. <laughs> and she goes, mm-hmm. And he starts massaging her belly button and starts massaging the lower half of her. And he says, you know what, honey, if this can produce eggs, we can get rid of the chickens. She go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he's feeling like he struck out. He got to get up early in the morning, so he rolls over. But before he rolls over, his wife starts massaging his shoulders, starts massaging his chest, starts massaging his belly button, starts massaging the lower half of him. And she said, you know what, honey? If this could stay rigid, we can get rid of your brother. <laughs> but the moral of the story is forget about the cows and the chickens, but take care of business. There you go. All right, there's a joke. <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. Uh, let's let's end here with, as as we know, five-time NBA champion, two-time WNBA champion, as a coach, one D League championship. When we're when we're talking about legends, is that enough to get you into the basketball Hall of Fame? And if it were to come to that, what, what would that mean to you? You know what I, w- I always tell people, I say the funny part about that is I'll get in after I die. So my kids, they'll actually get, present me in there. But you know what? Um, all those accolades are fine. Some people look at them. But you know what? The things that I was able to accomplish, the people I was able to accomplish it with, uh, Magic, Worthy, Kareem uh, are in there. And I figure, you know, Kareem is number 33. And two plus one is three. Magic was 32. So two plus one is three and two. And James Worthy was 42. Four. Two, yeah, four. So I got the two in there. So I'm in there with them. Our team is in there. Uh, it would be, uh, if that honor were to be bestowed upon me, I would uh, probably wouldn't know how to handle it. Uh, it would be a very emotional moment for me. But it'd probably be one of the, it wouldn't be one of my proudest achievements, but it would be nice to be considered with some of the greats to go in there. But, you know, I, I, um, uh, I don't think a lot about that. Uh, the one thing I do, I do really would like to happen. And it's something that the Boston Celtics done. And, you know, uh, the one criteria for the, your jersey to be hung up in the Staples Center is you had to have been an all-star. You have to have at least been an all-star. And... Um, I think that's uh, a smidge on the Lakers for a moment because Dr. Buss has started something so great. But what the Celtics do is that they got a banner hanging up there or a banner and it has probably about 10 numbers on it. And I think the Lakers should do that because championships are won as a team. And if you're going to retire that one player's number up there, just think about all the people that, you know, Magic was a terrible defensive player. But he gets all the accolades because I made his job easy and he got to do the offense. Uh, so I would love if the Lakers were to put uh, 21. I think Michael Thompson should be up there. A.C. Green should be up there. I think Pat Riley needs to be up there, a number one. You know, put a banner up. And it don't have to be big. You don't have to just have 25. But maybe six or seven numbers that were significant to the Lakers becoming the franchise that they were. Uh, that's myself. I think Norm Nixon. Uh, Jamal Wilkes is already up there, but I think Pat Riley needs to be recognized as a uh, uh, orchestrator of putting that whole thing together. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. And the one thing that I still love is that every now and then I'll get to a game. The people don't forget. You know, they still call your name out. And uh, to me, that um, that's my Hall of Fame because they don't forget. Yeah. So. Well, I'm sure they don't. You're a true L.A. legend. And so it's so great to, to have you on the, the podcast. And so I want to thank you. And I'm sure all the listeners will thank you as well. I normally, and don't know if this would be appropriate for you, I normally let my guests share any s- social media platforms that people can reach them on. So is that appropriate in, in your case? I don't have or, anything to okay. print the jet. I don't, yeah. I don't tw- tweet. I don't do email. I get email, but my wife kind of like does it. I don't do Facebook. I've never been on Facebook. Uh, I don't do Instagram. Uh, but my wife, she'll, 
she'll uh, put something on Instagram or something like that for me. But I, I'm, uh, I'm a technology wise, I'm an idiot. Hey, I'm, 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 I'm strictly stuck in the '60s. I think the telephone is the worst invention. The mobile telephone is the worst invention that they've ever made. But it's a good invention because now I'm able to get to you know your loved ones and you can be caught on the move. But I'm from back in the '60s where if you didn't catch me at work or you don't catch me at home, you don't catch me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I said I was going to end, but you mentioned inventions, and that's usually with you. I did the dent with Trent the gent. But there's also an invent with Trent the Gent, which is, so you say the phone is the worst <laughs> invention ever. So in your eyes, then what is the best invention ever? The best invention ever um, of anything that we have now? Whatever has been invented. I think that car, the automobile. The automobile. I think that that allows people to uh, come out their comfort zone and it allows you to travel. Uh, you know, uh, air, the airways and all that is fine and dandy, but for people that's not making that kind of money to where you can take, uh, buy five plane tickets, a family of five, and you have to fly somewhere, then you have to do that. No, the car, you can get in your car, and the money that you take to fly, you can use it for gas, and then you can use it to get there and, and uh, hotels and stuff like that, and then you can turn around and drive back. So the whole family becomes mobile and uh, then you can see your loved ones then. You can drive, I mean, when I was young, my mom would put us on, because we had people in New Hebron, Mississippi, we'd get on a Greyhound, put us on a Greyhound. She told us when to get off, when not to. Most of the time we stayed on, me and my brother, and we'd drive. It took us, what, three days to get there? But we'd get there and get to see our family, and then they'd send us back home. Then my mom would send us up to San Francisco. She moved up there. So we would get on the Greyhound, right up the 101, Pacific Coast, what a day and about a day trip yeah. with the bus and then we back home so i think the car is probably the best invention that's ever been made well, there you go venters that's coop's opinion on the best best <laughs> invention <laughs> for me so, <laughs> for him so like i said thank you so much um it's been an honor and hopefully we'll do it again down the line my pleasure real soon all right i hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as i did trent would love for you to share this episode with friends and family especially if they're a diehard Laker fan. Until next time, take one for the team.